Welcome to episode 36 of the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast, Evidence-Based Worming with Jude Matasevich. Now, I don't know about you guys, but every now and then I kind of do an audit of an area of my horse's health. And more recently, I decided to look at the way that I was worming my horses and whether I was operating in like best practice, whether I was actually doing the right things. Because I had heard of things like worming resistance and, you know, rotating your wormers, but I wasn't entirely sure exactly what I should be doing. So naturally, uh, being the horse nerd that I am, I did a little bit of research myself and I came across Jude Matasevich from Evidence-Based Worming, which she, which is a business she no longer operates. However, she is an absolute wealth of knowledge when it comes to worming. So who is Jude? Jude has worked in the field of prevention of increasing resistance to anthelmintics by, paras- uh, by parasitic worms in horses. I know that that means um, not too much to a lot of you right now, but wait till you listen to the episode and it'll start to become more clear. Basically, just know that she's a worming expert. She's highly educated and has a Master of Animal Science from Charles Sturt University. She has dedicated a portion of her career to educating horse owners about worm resistance in their horses and helping them to learn how to undertake fecal egg counts on their own properties with the aid of her DIY manual, Count Your Eggs Before They Hatch. Jude has also written for Horses and People magazine and is a member of the Australian Society for Parasitology. Jude's other interests include horse tax, specifically bridling, bitted and unbitted bridles, and has also undertaken research with an Australia-wide survey of equestrians about their bridle choices. And when she mentioned this to me, I was like, oh yeah, I think I filled out that survey. Um, But we're going to speak about that along with Jude's horsemanship journey in another upcoming episode. Today is all about worming. And I honestly feel like every horse owner in the world needs to listen to this episode because I've been doing worming for so long and maybe some of you guys have been doing worming wrong for so long as well. Um, But don't stress because Jude is going to break it down and let us know exactly what we should be doing when it comes to worming our horses. Make sure you grab a notepad and pen to take notes in this episode. So if you're driving, pull over, take some notes on your phone. Um, But Jude also mentions a PDF resource, which you can use um, to assist your worming practices. And the link to that PDF document can be found in the show notes of this episode. And as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a screenshot of you listening to this podcast um, and upload it to social media. Spread the word of the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. I love to see that you're actually listening to it and getting a lot out of it. So please let me know. And um, if you're feeling extra generous, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Anyway, let's get started with today's podcast, Evidence-Based Worming with Jude Manasevich. Welcome to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast, a source for riding and training insights with the goal of helping your horse be a light, happy and willing partner. I'm your host, Amalia Dempsey, a mainstream equestrian rider who discovered natural horsemanship and equine learning theory. And now I help riders like you achieve connection and communication with your horse so you can have more fun and fulfillment whilst prioritizing the partnership. Get more learning resources, including my free connection and communication mini course at AmaliaDempsey.com. Click the follow button so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave me a rating and review or screenshot this episode and share on social media. I hope you enjoy the show. 
Welcome Jude Matasevich to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. Thanks so much for being here today. I'm looking forward to talking all things worming. Thanks, Amalia. And I'm looking forward to being able to help um, your listeners to this podcast, if I can. Excellent. I'm sure you will. Can we start with, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what caused you to become so passionate about worming? Okay, yeah. Um, I've been in the horse industry one way or another for about, oh, over 40 years now. And um, I started off in, uh, I did about 10 years of dressage and then I moved on to horsemanship for various reasons. And I found a great passion in horsemanship. So I actually quit dressage. And um, I still, even though it's so much later, I now I have a, a lovely round pen and I still um, do my horsemanship stuff along with friends and that just for fun these days with my two standard red horses. That's what I've got now. Um, to answer your question about the worming thing, there's a, a, there's a big gap between my first interest in worm problems and when I actually got to do something about it. So um, probably long before many of your listeners were born, I um, had a horse um, who was a, a dressage prospect, beautiful, big, warm blood horses when warm bloods were only just coming into Australia. And um, I had him in a, um, an equestrian centre, which meant he had a, a big yard and a stable and he would go out just for being trained and that, and occasionally he would go out into a, a big paddock to have a bit of a gallop around with other horses. But every time I he, the horse never looked well. He always was a bit thin. He, he's, he was a, a, a black, um, but he faded to brown quickly. Um, it didn't seem to matter what I fed him. Um, he never thrived. And, um, in fact, I had a... Um, a riding instructor ride him and the horse just virtually stopped he was so weak and um, every time I um, put a treatment into this horse he and I didn't know this is taking it back before my knowledge so you have to have that in context I didn't know and anything about worms and resistance I just knew that I had to worm a horse every six weeks so I did that and every time I wormed him, I would check his manure and I would find thousands and thousands of what I now know to be called Southestomans or small strong isles in them. And I thought, oh, beauty, you know, that's cleaned him out. Now he's going to be fit again. And it never happened. And I eventually um, contacted my vet and who was one of these wonderful old school vets and he just... Um, took one look at the horse and he said, your horse has got worm resistance. And I went, what's that? <laughs> and he told me what it was. And um, he said, but you're lucky because there is a new product just come onto the market. And I think it's now in a form that horse owners can use. And it's called Ivermectin. So this is going back to 1984-ish. Um, so I said, well, let's try it. Because previously it was only used on cattle and it was in injectable um, product and they didn't want to use it on horses because the, the mantra at that time was the horses slid off the needle dead. So obviously I wouldn't want to use that. So anyway, Richard managed to get some in a paste format and then um, we pasted the horse and it just came out, just millions and millions of dead worms came out and then after that I used that product into the future, still once every month or every six weeks. That's the first time I'd heard of resistance. Um, so now we fast forward to uh, the 21st century 
And when I retired from my um, main occupation at the Department of Agriculture, the Commonwealth Department of Agriculture, I decided to embark on a um, master's degree in um, animal science, which is focusing on equine science. I'd already had another um, diploma in equine science, but I thought I would, you know, just do something to keep the old brain going. And um, when I studied microbiology, I thought, I love this stuff. And um, I really took a great interest in anything to do with parasites and resistance. So through that, I um, was able to really put together the framework for a small, just a little one-person business that could help people learn how to do um, fecal egg counts for their own horses because things changed a lot from the times when we used to um, treat our horses religiously every six weeks or so to now where for the first time I heard about um, uh, evidence-based um, treatments um, based on, you know, the number of um, eggs counted in horse faeces. And that to me was, it took a long time for me to get my head around that. And um, I, I just I thought once, once I did and became comfortable with it, I quickly bought myself a little microscope and I talked to my vet and I asked how to do it, and um, she told me, and and I never got any eggs at all. And I said to her, it's not working for me, and thinking it was a really, really um, difficult science, and she said, just go and get a sample from an adjustment paddock near you. And so I did that, and when I saw, I thought, oh, <laughs> I know exactly what eggs look like now, and, um, and that was my kind of launching point. So from just doing other people's egg counts, um, for their horses, I thought, hang on, I, I there's no way I can possibly keep this up. So I wanted to just inform people about it. And then I did a little business plan and then gradually I sort of got onto that um, area of other people can do this too. And because people in the sheep and cattle industry have been doing it for years. So that kind of how that came about. So it was about 2000 and, um 16 that I started doing the business and but the the origin of the idea was from the experience was back in 1984 and the reason we do this now is because there are no new anthelmintics coming on the market none at all I, I was just dead lucky that horse would not have survived so in a way back in 1984 I saw the future without realizing it I saw the future of what would happen if we get into this situation again and there are no new anthelmintics coming onto the market, the worming treatments. Okay. Yeah. Wow. What a journey. Um, yeah. So you've spoken a little bit about resistance already, and I know we're going to talk a little bit more about that later, but just for mm -hmm. context, can you tell us what resistance actually is and why horse owners should know about it? Yeah. Okay. Well, resistance, it's actually very similar to our current COVID situation. Um, when you get, um, um, any any small creature like a um, a virus or a, a parasite or a bacterium, if they've got a very quick life cycle, they can um, adapt and they can change really really quickly. Um, whereas a human would take thousands of years. Um, but what happens is that every every um, parasite. We'll just now talk about parasite. Every parasite for every population of, of the one kind of parasite, one or two of them might have a gene in it that will um, render it um, not um, uh, able to withstand anthelmintics. 
So logically, they don't get swept out of the system when all their neighbours do. So they stay there, they reproduce, and they pass that gene on. So over time, and it's actually quite a quick time when, when you're talking about, um, you know, very small, well, you can see with COVID how quick it is when we're getting all these variations, and that's all through um, um, mutation. But with these small strongyles, the horseworms, it's, you can, um, since 19, let me think, I think the first kind of resistance came into ivermectin around 1989, so you can see how quickly from 1984 to 1989 for horses, and then gradually uh, more and more resistance has um, has sort of expanded in the worm population so that today some products will not work against these worms at all. We're a little better in Australia because we um, it's sort of newer for us, um, but overseas I believe now in some countries um, you have to get a veterinary prescription to get an antimintic because um, resistance is so bad. Wow. Wow. There you go. So mm. in a nutshell, it sounds like there are certain, I'm going to use terminology that uh, probably you have a more scientific word for it, but certain worms are resistant to the dewormers or the medication that we use to try and remove them. Yeah. And because those surviving worms breed and all of their progeny, I guess, uh, carry that gene that allows them to survive that medication. Then we yes. have this new um, strain of worms, I guess, that are resistant to any type of medication that we are going to give the horses and therefore the worms will never die and that's going to be a problem mm. because it will affect the horse's health, correct? That, that's, that's it in a nutshell. So mm. a term that I'm going to give which most people haven't heard of is refugia. Okay. And refugia are worms that are not resistant. Um, they are their population is gradually getting smaller, and resistant worms is getting bigger. Okay, so your your population of resistant worms and refugia make up a hundred percent of the worm population. What we have to do now, and we'll go into this shortly about how we can do it. What we have to do is look after the refugia. Because the more of those that you have, the less uh, resistant worms you'll have. Okay. Does that make sense? So it's when you're talking about refugia and resistance, you've got, say, say you've got 60% um, of um, resistant worms, you'll have 40% of non-resistant worms or refugia. What yep. we have to do is bring, bring that 40% up. Really? So I would have thought we need to kill them all. <laughs> <laughs> no. In fact, that's a very, very good point. And what a lot of people don't understand is that a small worm burden on a, in a horse actually is quite good for its immune system. So when you think about that, worms and horses have co-evolved over the eons. Um, they, uh, there wouldn't be any horses today if that parasite was 100% effective. So, um, and it's been done in human studies in Africa that. Um, um, some worms are actually good for, um, you know, little kids when they started to depopulate the children from, from different worm burdens. They found that children came down with other diseases which had never previously been seen. So it's, it's something, it's almost, and you never really hear about it when they talk about parasites, but it's almost a symbiotic relationship, which means um, that, that they both benefit, the horse benefits and the worm benefits. 
Where it goes wrong is that the worm burden can get out of sync and then they will, for various reasons, it could be something to do with the horse's immunity or stress in the horse or, um, you know, drought or anything that could cause the worm population in the horse to explode, which is then become it really becomes a parasite to the horse. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that is something I never knew. I would have thought that all worms are bad and that we should get rid of all of them. And I'm assuming that there are some other common misconceptions that people have about worming. Can you share some other things that people think that's probably Um, incorrect? There are three big ones. One is, uh, and most of these have been put forward by the, um, the chemical wormer companies because it's in their interest to keep you buying these products, Mm. right? And what they want you to do is worm regularly. Some of them, I I shouldn't actually um, paint them all in a bad way. Some are actually starting to come on board with it because they know it's in their interest to keep the the wormers that they've got um, viable into the future because they know there are no new products coming onto the market. It It takes 15, 20 years to get a product from an idea through to getting it approved by the um, um, the veterinary chemicals place for use in horses. So you can sort of see it's a huge investment of their time and resources. So, but nothing's happening at the moment. So, um, but there are still some companies that are trying to get you to uh, use more, to keep going every six weeks or so. Um, others want you to change products every six weeks or so. Um, and uh, the other place that uh, thing I get all the time is when um, uh, people have their horses on adjustment and and then the adjustment manager says, okay, everybody has to now deworm their horses and then we move them all to another paddock. And that is one of the myths I try and blow because what you're doing is you are knocking out all the refugia, the good worms, and then you are moving, if there are any, you are moving all of the resistant ones into the new paddock. So you are filling up your new paddock with resistant worms. So it doesn't make any sense. So you have to assume that worms are in all paddocks. And it's just a case of nothing out which horses that we should worm and which horses we should just leave alone. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. As you're talking, I'm just thinking, oh, my gosh, I think I'm doing everything wrong in terms of worming my horses or not worming them, um, which I suppose is why I contacted you in the first place. Um, So could you tell us, and I'm sure all of our listeners are thinking the same thing, what should we actually be doing? What are your recommendations for worming horses? Like what should we worm and when should we worm at all? When to do fecal egg counts, et cetera. Give us what's the best practice. Well, first of all, I'll just go on with a little bit of, um, I'll try my, I won't use science babble, but okay. it all started off with a study in, because as I mentioned earlier, the situation in Europe was really quite dire. So um, the University of Kentucky and, and other um, universities did a, a, a study of some um, very large stud farms in, I think it was Denmark. And at the end, they had um, the number of horses, a very good sample size of, um, I think it was over a 1,000 horses. And what they found out was that um, around 60% of horses, no, about 40% of horses were high shedding horses. That is, they had a very high worm burden, which were, you know, as they poo it out, it goes on the grass and then develops and then another horse can eat it. But 60, I think it was 64% of horses don't have a high worm burden, but they're treated anyway. So the idea 
behind evidence-based worming was to um, have a look. Uh, and, of course, sorry, I'll just go back. And so they, because of the strength of this study, they extrapolated that worldwide only a, a smaller number of horses really need to be treated and the rest can just be left alone. Now, there's a magic number that probably everyone's heard of is 200 eggs per gram. Um, so that's the number of eggs that would be counted in a sample under a microscope. And I know this sounds complicated, but it'll all come become clear shortly, I hope. <laughs> um, 200 eggs per gram is, was agreed by the um, equine parasitologists and vets that that is the number of eggs that um, below which you leave the horse alone, you don't treat it with anything, and above which treatment may be necessary. Now, it, it's probably around 500, but there, there's a grey area. It just depends on your, on your, um, your pad, you know, sort of housing situations for your horses. So when this all this number became available, um, textbooks were written and guidance was sent out to vets around the world and evidence-based worming, or I think it's got other names as well, started to come to the fore. So um, the idea is that you, um, let's just say you've got one horse and then we'll go on to multiple horses. So if you've got one horse and you think, okay, well, I, I was going to worm my horse this week, but why don't I just check out this evidence-based worming thing? So um, you take your a small sample, to your vet and ask the vet to do an egg count and then the egg count will come back to say 500 eggs per gram or or higher and you would go oh that's a number I really need to treat my horse but if it's low say if it's around 200 or maybe maybe just a little bit over um, you would just go okay well I'm going to do an egg count again in another month and if that number's going up I'll treat the horse but if it's not going up I'll leave him alone or her. And so this is this is how you do it. Um, with large numbers of horses, such as stud farms and that, you would need to do what I call a benchmark. So all the horses um, get their readings done at the, about the same time and that sets the benchmark. But once again, you only treat the high shedding horses and you leave the low shedding horses alone. The idea is that over time you will build a picture, whether you have one horse or 20 or 30 horses, you will build a picture of that horse's immune system and how it's dealing with its own worms. So a horse that um, may have had 500 eggs per gram and the next time you do an egg count, which could be in two or three months, it's, it's still only got um, you know, 200 or 150 eggs per gram you start to see, you can stretch out the time between the egg counts. And then in my personal situation, I've never yet seen an egg in my horse's feces, so they get treated once a year, and that's not for what, not, not for the small worms, it's for all the other worms. So just, so what all your listeners could aspire to is treating their horse once a year with an anthelmintic or a, 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 a worming treatment. So that's kind of going to save them a lot of money and that money will go through to hopefully getting them to either get the egg counts done um, by their vet or somehow learning how to do the procedure themselves, which isn't difficult at all. So is that 
have I complicated things or would you like to me to clarify on that? No, that's good. And I'm I'm thinking as you're talking, we almost need like a flow chart, like start here. If this happens, do this. If this happens, do that. Yeah. Um, perhaps you have something like that. I do have um, this, uh, this seasonal guide thing that I will um, help uh, send to you. Oops. Yep. Send to you and then you can um, put it as a link on your on your page uh, that you, when you introduce me on your Facebook page, if you like, and then Fantastic. that has got what people do in spring, summer, autumn, winter, and, and a few other tips as well. Perfect. And that was one of the other questions I had. Um, yes, the goal is to potentially worm just once a year, but if someone is new to fecal egg counts, um, you sort of already did touch on that, but would we be wanting, aiming to do a fecal egg count every two to three months until we see that number drop or... Yeah, um, you, it would be a good idea, and I appreciate that um, that some vets charge a lot, mm-hmm. and that's a incentive for people. But if it's um, if you net that off against the cost of antimentics, I think over say a year it becomes quite doable. And and but the good thing is if you do regular, um, such as every six weeks, like when you would do a a, a treatment instead of doing the treatment, just go, okay, I'll just take a little bit of manure into the vet and get the, to do the count. And then you'll know if your horse has got, um, if it's, if the number's not shifting at all, then you know you've got probably a problem with um, the, the treatment that you are using or um, the horse has got um, an immune system that's not really dealing with them. And there are in my practice where I was doing hundreds and hundreds of egg counts, I did notice that some horses, it was mainly thoroughbreds, tended to have higher egg counts than, say, standard breeds. And I, I don't know what the reason for that is, but it may have been um, very early um, when pre- pre- preparing these horses for the sale that they were completely, you know, wiped clean of, of eggs where you really should let young horses have some worms so that they can build up their own resistance over time. So yeah. that that's a, that's um, not very scientific, but this okay. just was my anecdotal evidence from yeah. doing egg counts. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, before, when you said take your fecal or take your samples to the vet, yeah. I know that there are some yeah. people that aren't vets that offer these fecal egg counts. Is it totally fine to take samples to those people, or would you prefer a vet? What are your thoughts on that? Well, you you can you can take them. I mean, if there are people around, and I know that I was, I know that people I have trained. Are doing it, um, but it's not it, it's not a difficult um, process. In fact, I encourage anyone who has the opportunity to um, buy a small microscope and then learn the um, procedure um, to do their own faecal counts, or, or go into you know uh, get a group of you to sort of buy a microscope between you and um, and do it. Unfortunately, you do have to have a microscope. The two key things you have to have is a microscope and a, a, um, a McMaster slide. So it's a particular kind of slide. But, um, yes, yeah, so it's uh, – I've forgotten the question that you asked me. I'm sorry. It's um, – uh, What were we talking about? I've forgotten now too. Um, anyway, it's uh, – yes, people will have to do – just take like a oh, – other people are doing these tests too. That's if, right, yes. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes of course, I forget the, my own questions. <laughs> oh, don't worry. I, I forget the answer. Um, <laughs> I find that if people can, um, if, if these people are doing the service, just be prepared that they may not be qualified to give you all the answers that you might want. 
Yeah. Because I have, I still know that some people who are doing this service still believe that your horse should have no eggs in, in the, and, and the only way you could ever tell whether a horse has worms or not is through um, a necros, necro, I can never say the word, through a, um, you know, after the horse dies and, and um, looking at the, having an autopsy. Yeah. So, and there's not much call for that, of course. So no. you can't, you can never assume a horse has got no um, worms at all. But I do find disturbingly that some people are always aiming for a zero egg count and it's not plausible and it's not desirable. So um, okay. it's just people should be looking at a low egg count, which is under 200 eggs per gram. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And with this goal of worming once per year, I know a lot of horse people work in brands in terms of scientific names. Can you share with us what type of product you would recommend we use for that once per year um, treatment? Okay. Well, that's that's. I'm glad you asked that because I did want to talk a little bit about um, brands. There are hundreds of brands uh, worldwide of um, uh, horse wormers, mm-hmm. but it's important to know that there are only three chemical groups. And they are the BZs, the um, or benzimidazoles, which is sort of like um, uh, let me have a look at some of these. So there's Panacur, Telman, Oxymins, Telman Plus, Strategy T, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So, but that's only one group of, of chemicals. Then there are your parentals or morantals, and there is just Equiban. And then there is the group of the macrocyclic lactones, which are your ivermectin and your moxidectin-type wormers. And what are some brand examples of those? Okay, so brand examples of those are um, Equimec, um, where's the uh, ammo? Yeah. I'm just sort of looking at ones that I see. uh, There's heaps of them. Um, The Verbac wormer, Equimax elevation, now, where's the one with uh, that one there? And there's Equest Plus. Okay, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. now, I would be staying away from the BZs. Okay. Because there is a, a quite a bit of evidence that there is a lot of resistance to the BZs. Interesting. So, anything with, anything with benzamidazole in it or BZ or Z-sounding things, mm-hmm. I would avoid Right. I would, um, parental and morantal, um, Equiband, uh, you don't actually see that much anymore. So Yeah, I've never heard of Equiband. Never heard of it. It used to be everywhere um, back in the, which is probably why it wasn't working, you know, with my horse because that's what I used to use. Um, But the macrocyclic lactone, so all of these other ones, so Equimec, um, Equiwormer, anyway, it will all have um, uh, Equi something in it probably yeah and and there might be some other product in it so that was the other now let me just finish this bit first otherwise i'll confuse everybody no that's all right so i would be using a product with um with a, a macrocyclic lactone in it so one of the ones with um equimec or or that sort of thing in it so equest box um ammo um expel verbac horsewormer equitech excel then there's um, Equivalent Gold. There's heaps of them. Yeah, okay. So, but, but they're all kind of equi, equi-mech-y kind of thing. When there's a mech in it, it's it, it will almost certainly be one of the macrocyclic lactones. Okay. So that's what I would use because there is less resistance 
to that group than all of the other group. Yeah, okay. And if, you know, if their fecal egg count is already under 200, like it's already low, what is the purpose for worming once a year anyway? Well, you, the idea is that you are, that that is that the reason for doing it once a year is that horses may get other worms. So they may get tapeworm, for example. Right. They also have horses get bots, which are an insect. So they get that. And the once a year and at a specified time, which I'll tell you, um, that will clean all that out as well. Okay. Yes. All right. So now the timing for that is in um, late autumn, like in the last week or so or the first week of winter. And in most situations, you know, in where we have the seasons like that in Australia, um, the reason for that is um, mainly around bot, bot flies and um, dung beetles. So in order not to damage dung beetles, you have to hit the um, horse with a worm at a time where the dung beetles aren't breeding. So coincidentally and happily, the bot flies are lastly seen around the last week of autumn. Um, so it's sort of um, or the first week of winter, depending on the mildness of the situation. So if you treat your horse at that time after the, after the last bot flies and before winter really gets started, then you are cleaning your horse out of um, things such as tapeworm and um, any strong guys it might have at that time. So and then that, that sets you up. But if, for some people, it will take a little while to get down to that once a year thing. Um, some people will find it within a, a, a year. They'll say, oh, gosh, my horse has had almost a no reading the whole time. Well, I may as well stop doing fecal egg counts and just treat, you know, do, do one fecal egg count a year and then treat the horse. And um, that's the ideal. That's what you would aspire to. Some horses will never get there, but many horses, over 64%, will get there so yeah now I must say when you are doing that once a year um, then the product must also contain praziquantel uh, which is um, it's p-r-a-z-i-q-u-a-n-t-e-l and that is the product it's a very safe product but that treats horse tapeworm yeah so if, you, if you're doing it once a year you have to have to have a product but most of these will have a plus um, on them, and when it says plus, it usually means that there is praziquantel in it. Okay, and just to yeah. clarify for our listeners as well, I think you've already said this, but um, the reason why we're um, why we're worming with these types of wormers once a year is because on those fecal egg counts, it doesn't actually pick up all types of worms. So we need exactly. to do once a year treatment to cover the other types. Exactly. In fact, you can't ever see, you'll never see a, um, a, a, well, I have once, so I don't want to tell complete lies, okay. <laughs> but I have once seen a tapeworm egg. Uh, tapeworms, um, it, it's, if I, parasites are fascinating, but tapeworms will actually shed um, segments and inside the segments um, will be little things called glottids and um, they are, each, each segment is a package of glottids so it has to come out of the horse, hit the ground, and then, then it will, after there's a little bit of desiccation in the environment or drying in the environment, these um, packages will split open and out will come these little glottids which contain the eggs of the, um, the, the new tapeworm section. And then they are taken up by um, a, an intermediate host um, and then go back into the horse that way. So 
the chances of picking up one of those eggs for a faecal egg count is, is negligible. Um, others that you won't get are the uh, pinworm. You won't find their eggs um, in a sample because the pinworm lays her eggs around the anus of the horse. So once again, it becomes almost impossible to see those. So you just got to assume some of these um, uh, worms might be there and treat them anyway. Um, what is the other one? The other one that you will see, um, it, which is um, a very important one, we probably won't touch on this now because it's a whole subject on its own, uh, round, round worms in foals. You will see those in an, um, uh, in an egg count and you will have to notify the owner of the horse pretty quickly because uh, roundworms can actually, in large numbers, can kill, can kill foals and young horses. So people who are in the breeding industry, they will know about this and they will say to the vet, please check. This is the age of the horse. It's under a year old. Please check for roundworm eggs. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Right. Okay. And should we be worried about resistance with these other types of worms? Um, that's a very good question. Um, the, I think not because the reason is um, it's it's mainly the small strong guiles that are going to cause an illness in your horse. The other ones, such as tapeworms, um, they don't usually, unless the horse is very neglected, they don't usually build up in the numbers that are going to um, affect the horse's health. Uh, pinworms cause most of the damage um, because horses are scratching their bottoms. And that it is, it is an annoying worm um, to have the eggs in that um, around the anus. Um, and bot flies, most of the damage that is done by um, bot flies actually is the horses running away from the bot flies and running into a fence or something. So, no, it's the ones that, um, and, and also I should point, I don't know, um, when I was, you know, back in the day, when I heard about all this um, worming stuff, there were the large strongars, uh, strong, strongless vulgaris, which was a, a, a different, a, a much bigger brother to the small strongars, and that one was quite damaging to the horse. But it appears, touch wood, in this country that those populations have been pretty much knocked out. They are making a reemergence in Europe, interestingly, but I haven't heard of any of that in Australia. So we tend to go just for the small strong girls because they're the ones who can build up their numbers very quickly um, in the horse. Now, um, what I would like to go on and just talk a little bit about too is um, that uh, there is one particular standout um, uh, mectin or uh, macrocyclic lactone drench that does more good most times and it's the only one that I will use and that is... Um, uh, that's the Equest Plus tape. So Equest Plus tape, and it's long-acting, and um, moxidectin is the only um, horse treatment that actually will kill the um, a certain stage of worms. So when a horse ingests a bad worm, like an L3, a bad worm, and it goes inside the horse and, and in the shortest sort of time for it, to be eaten up and then pooed out is about four to five weeks, right? So, and then it goes through the grass and then it gets eaten by another horse. So, but inside the horse is about four to five weeks. That is called the short life cycle. But these small worms also have the ability to go into, burrow into the horse's gut and stay there and just, you know, kill time, 
for up to two years. And so that is the long life cycle of them. Now, because of this, um, some inquiries went, um, you know, sort of tried to answer the question of what we can do to get these horses worms that are in, um, what are called um, encysted. They're called encysted cyathostomes. And they thought, well, the only thing that will kill them is something that can go through the bloodstream. So um, moxidectin is the drug that they developed that would go through the bloodstream and kill those worms where they were. And that's important for me to say where they were because there is some misinformation saying uh, that they might all suddenly um, erupt into the intestine and cause um, the horse to get sick. And it's usually a different kind of wormers that will do that, but not moxidectin. It kills those little worms where they are, and that's why they can call it long-acting because once you clear out the tubes, they're not there to come back in um, to, the, to fill the void, if you like. So they moxidectin can go out to about three months, whereas most horsewormers are around six weeks, although that time period is getting shorter. So that's just something I wanted to explain. Now, that is the only wormer that I use once a year um, because it is just a, a one hit. There are, are some, um, if you are breeding um, or have very small horses, there, are, there may be some concerns in that um, for using moxidectin on, say, Shetlands or miniatures or young horses that are very small, um, and that I would talk to the vet about before using it. But these, don't forget, these uh, indications are all on the box anyway, so they have their proportions, yeah. Now, as you're talking, I'm thinking about our international listeners because many are Australian, but many are overseas as well. And I'm wondering whether worming protocol changes depending on your location. And I don't even know if Equest Plus is available overseas or whether there's an international alternative. They would probably have a, um, it, it just depends on how they're marketed overseas. But the important thing is to always go by the ingredients and not the brand name. So if it is uh, moxidexin, moxidexin plus praziquantel, it is equivalent of Equest Plus, and that is what you would use for that long-acting one. Um, yes, uh, for seasons, um, there's no real change unless if you've got um, in the tropics, you might have to um, check your horse more often. In the cold areas like, you know, north, north of North America and Canada and that, there's a, a very long cold season, so your um, your season for transmitting these worms is much shorter. So it does go on temperature. So the optimum temperature for the best um, uh, development of, of the larvae of the worms is between 25 and 35 degrees Celsius. So above that, they, could, uh, they can um, dry out, and below that, um, they just, it's, it's very slow, their life cycle. So that's sort of kept in mind. Um, also, horses that are kept maybe on um, irrigated pasture, so they need moisture as well because the little worms, the L2s, um, so when they're pooed out, they become, um, uh, they're pooed out as L4s and then they develop in the manure and then the little baby ones will come out and they start wandering through the grass. And they need moisture. They cannot wander through the grass if there is no moisture, it's like dew on the grass. So in um, Australian summer, there's not going to be very much what they call migration 
Um, and winter, where it's very cold, it'll be quite slow. But in spring and autumn, where there's a bit of rain, that they will be able to migrate. And they can migrate around 30 centimetres from the actual um, uh, dung pile. And then before they will find a blade of grass and start growing up. And then they're sheathed. Um, and that's when the horse eats them. So, um, and then gets digested and it all happens again. Mm, okay. Yeah. yeah. And it's brought up another question for me in terms of manure management, because that's a mm-hmm. problem we all face. What yeah. would you say is best practice for manure management when it comes to worming or avoiding um, horses being affected yeah. by worms? Yeah. The very best um, way to reduce worm numbers on a pasture is, of course, to collect the manure. Um, but, you know, knowing that that is quite an, a, a, a large job for anybody, um, having a large enough pasture because horses will uh, um, have their own self-management, if you like, and that they will not normally eat around their dung piles. Now, where this can be slow, yeah, where this can be, and they, they're called their roughs, so they will avoid their roughs. Um, which is, you know, and a lot of horses will only dung in, in, it's not just stallions, but a lot of horses will only dung in, in certain places as long as there is enough room. Where this becomes troublesome for some horses, though, is if they're young and they'll get pushed away from the best feed, so they might start eating, you know, because they don't have the knowledge or anything, they will start eating around those areas. Or if a horse is a very low-ranking horse, might also get pushed out of the way. And then they start eating what's available. So it does go on what what the ranking of the horses is as well. But, um, yeah, the best management by far is is to collect it. Yeah. Yeah. Remove it completely. Yeah. Yeah. I have noticed that my horses. Sorry, you go. I was just going to say just one thing uh, because this also comes up about spreading the manure. Um, You know, people go, well, I'm just going to spread it all over the pasture. and, And that's fine, but lock that pasture up for at least a year. Because all you're doing is spreading worms everywhere, if you've got worms. Yeah, and, all, and you know, you, you really should assume that every pasture is wormy to some extent or another. So it's pointless trying to, you know, to beat it. But the only way you can do, um, um, make sure is to lock, the, lock it up for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I'm sure, um, you know, paddock rotation in general is, is good yeah. for health and in terms of it is and also if you've got other species so you know there's i think only one i can't remember um species of worm that actually is transmissible between cattle and horses but it doesn't hurt the horse anyway Mm -hmm. um so if you've got sheep and horses or cattle and horses then that's something because they can eat up each other's worms and that helps to clean them up too because they're not going to affect the horses or or the cattle yeah Yeah, so I was going to say before as well, my horses on, are on a large pasture, but they do like to poo in one kind of area. And I've always wondered yeah. why. So that's interesting. Yeah. No, they're really, and, and of course, before we put them in, in things called paddocks, they just kept, they kept moving. So they were never near their roughs, were they? They just left all that behind. And by the time they got back there again, a whole year or more had gone past. And, um, yeah, so it's only since we've domesticated horses and kept them in confined that we do have these issues. But not so much. You have to think about the life cycle of the worm. So if you've got a horse in a yard, it can't really reinfect itself because the the worm needs its life cycle to go on. So it needs grass. It needs to be able to um, complete its life cycle to get to the infective stage. So if you've got a horse in a yard, it it can't really happen. Okay, yeah. Mm. Now, what are some signs that our horses might be suffering from worms? 
that's a really good question because um, in the really extreme cases, everyone will know. They'll, the horses will look sick. Um, they will have um, possibly, you know, sort of extended gut. Um, they, their coats will be sort of staring. The horse will be lethargic. Um, the horse will eat but no, no condition will be put on. Now, that is an extreme case um, where the horse might have something else going on, which is compromising its immunity so that the worms can really get in there and get their bit before the horse dies. Or it could be um, that uh, it's just um, been neglected. So the thing I need to caution people about is that even horses with large egg counts, like um, the highest one I got was over 5,000 eggs per gram, and that horse was stunning and competing in dressage. So horses have a different capability. And when um, because the, the, this client came to me after getting an egg count done by the vet, and she said that can't be the case. And so um, I said, as soon as I looked through the microscope, I said, they're, they're right. <laughs> and because um, I've got a clicker for every egg that I click. And um, then there's a multiplier at the end of that. And I said, yes, your horse does have a huge egg count. You know, what will I do? So I that horse ended up going on um, the moxidectin one. And I said, you better hold on in your next, next dressage day because if your horse is competing that well with that higher worm burden, then she's going to feel really good. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what I'm trying to say is you probably won't really see a horse maybe in sale yards or, you know, sort of some of these animal cruelty cases where horses really looks ill and there could be a number of things going on, but you can't be fooled. A horse that can also have a high egg count um, and still be very well. And so for that horse, you're not really doing the worming for um, the horse's benefit. You're doing it to try and stop that huge load of eggs that are going onto the pasture. So there's a subtlety there. So, it, okay, your horse has got a great immune system, but most people don't want that many worms in the horses anyway because it, could, it probably is a lot of worms, but although st some studies have tried to find out whether the number of eggs correlates with the number of worms in a horse and no study's been able to confirm it. And here's just a, sort of a lame example that you might have one female worm laying hundreds of eggs or you might have 100 worms laying one egg each. Mm. So the number's the same, but a very different situation inside the horse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And are there more kind of subtle signs that a horse might be suffering from worms? Like, you know, obviously there are horses that are able to, you know, compete at a high level or look like they're not being affected at all, even though they have a high count. But what about horses that are just starting to show signs and it might be affecting them? Um, it's, um, I think the, the owners, are, you know, once they start noticing something's wrong about their horse, I've noticed that owners will start doing a range of things to eliminate that. And one of the things they will do is treat the horse anyway because the vet will say, well, let's let's eliminate the worm possibility. And it's something that the horse owner can do. So it will be a case of elimination of various things and then they've got a bit of a record or they can say to the vet, I've, I've had this six months' worth of um, fecal egg counts and they show, you know, um, 45 eggs per gram, a very low one. So that's evidence that they can then give the vet. Um, or they can just say, I've treated the horse um, and now that the horse is showing no eggs per gram, so um, 
I don't think it's worms. And then the vet will say, okay, well, let's do blood tests and everything. And if there's an, there could be an anemia, a severe anemia could be an indication of, of worms. Um, but the horse might still be, you know, travelling quite well. But it's a case of elimination. So when the horse isn't looking like it's thriving, then you start off by doing what the owner can do by themselves. And then um, if things aren't improving, then they contact the vet. And I've had a lot of clients come to me and said, my horse isn't doing well. It's um, uh, It's got really loose um, feces or it's this or it's that. But we're just going to eliminate the um, the, thing, the possibility that it's got worms first. Because sometimes, you know, the loose feces could be um, they're on really green pasture, for, you know, and haven't been for a while. But they, there's any number of veterinary sorts of reasons for that. So it's a case of a process of elimination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, as you know, I asked uh, the followers of the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast on Instagram if they had any questions about worming. So if it's yep. okay with you, I'd like to ask you those questions now. Okay. So we've got Cassie who asks, I was told it's better to worm when the seasons change. Is this true? Oh, hi, Cassie. Um, <laughs> uh, yes and no. Um, no, you don't do it every season um uh because i'm hoping you'll be doing egg counts after listening to this podcast yeah but the when the season changes from autumn to winter yes if you are able to do just one treatment a year then that is the time to do it um all of the other treatments should only be based on the results of an egg count yeah makes sense okay and naomi asks how long into winter and in brackets frosts do bot flies die off wanting to worm but don't want to do so too early yeah, well, I think I may have covered that, but um, just to reinforce it, at usually at the end of autumn in Australia, so it's sort of around um, um, April, May, probably around the end of May, you'll find that your bot flies are no longer around, um, and so that is the time to do it if you want to get all of the bot flies, um, all the bot eggs out of the horse. But just on that, um, uh, it's... Uh, I don't think the treatments actually kill all the bot eggs. So you might want to, if if you're collecting the manure, you might want to bury it because they could still develop into flies um, at the end of, um, you know, at the end of treatment. You know, some horses actually um, have a lot of eggs, uh, bot, um, bot larvae in their manure. So it's probably a good idea to actually um, bury that manure or put it somewhere where they can't continue to develop into flies for the following season. Okay, yeah. yeah. And Charlie asks, what time period should you worm horses in Australia? I've had so many different answers. I know you've kind of already answered <laughs> that today, but um, just to recap. Well, Charlie, um, um, by now you'll know that you only do it based on a faecal egg count, but um, I'm also um, going to give um, Amalia a seasonal guide. So you'll be able to print that out and then just stick it in your um, feed shed or um, so that you'll be able to see what to do in the various seasons of the year and what's going on and a few other little tips. So, yes, only only treat on the basis of egg counts. That's if I can implore um, all of your listeners to, to spend that money and just do the egg counts, then your horse will probably never, ever end up in a situation like I did back in the 1980s where I had a horse that was resistant because there's, as I said, no chemicals coming onto the market and it can only be bad news in the long term for your horse if it gets um, complete resistance to all of the current products. Yeah, okay. 
And before we wrap up, Jude, I know that you're going to give us access to that seasonal guide, which I'll yep. put in the caption to this um, episode, but I'll also put it mm-hmm. on social media. But can you tell us where our listeners can find out more trustworthy information about worms and worming horses apart from that seasonal guide? Absolutely. Um, and I'll sort of, I can tell you now, but I'll also put these um, in writing. So there is the um, AAEP Parasite Control Guidelines. Now, AAEP stands for American Association of Equine Practitioners. So if you go to that site um, and just um, then uh, scroll your way through to the Parasite Control Guidelines, that is put out um, by the um, University of Kentucky in America, and they are the world's leaders in parasite control. So for horses, that is, because they've got a, you know, the Kentucky Derby. So everything is horse-oriented at that university. So that is one, and that has in, in it everything that you would do for every age of the horse, mares in foal, all that sort of stuff, and it's very easy to read. It's not, re- it's not printed for veterinarians. It is printed for the lay person. Um, if you wanted to get into anything more detailed, then there is... Um, the Handbook of Equine Parasite Control, um, which is written by one of the uh, vets from the, um, or two of the vets from um, the University of Kentucky, so Martin Nielsen um, and Craig Reinmeier. Um, Martin Nielsen, get onto his Twitter feed. He sometimes puts out little videos and things, and he's a lovely person, and he runs the School of um, Parasitology at the University of Kentucky, and he's very... He's helped me a lot in my business um, with um, being freely available information that I can share myself. So they're the two um, they're the two uh, go to places for information that I would recommend. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for coming on to the podcast today. It's been great speaking with you. And I know that personally, I'm going to be changing my worming practices. And hopefully this has a positive impact on the horse world as a result of what we've discussed today. So thanks again. You're very welcome, Amalia, and it's been my pleasure to actually impart all this information. And good luck, everybody, with your fecal leg counts. Thanks for listening to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. Make sure you hit the follow button so you get notified every time a new episode is released. And if you've learned even just one small thing from today's show, I would really appreciate if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or screenshot this episode and share it on social media. You can connect with me on Instagram at Amalia underscore horses or my website AmaliaDempsey.com where you can find free resources to help you on your horsemanship journey. That's all for today. Thanks for being here. Remember to train with kindness and ride with excellence and I'll see you in the next episode. 